Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Event Horizon. Event Horizon is the culmination of a secret government project to create a spacecraft capable of faster than light flight. The ship doesn't really go faster than light. What it does is it creates a dimensional gateway that allows it to jump instantaneously from one point of the universe to another light years away. Where has she been for the last seven years, Doctor? That's what we're here to find out. After seven years in deep space. There were 18 people on board this ship when it disappeared. I want them all accounted for. Opening outer door. It came back abandoned. Any crew? Negative. This place is a tomb. But it didn't come back alone. Captain Miller! I've got some problems here! beyond the boundaries of our universe who knows where it's been and what it's brought back with it did you hear that what is it this ship is reacting to us and the reactions are getting stronger what are you telling me that this ship is alive i have such wonderful things to show you oh my god it knows my secrets my fears. Vacate. I want off this ship. I can't leave. She won't let you. Welcome to the first instalment of our late 2018 commissions season. A grim and grisly encounter on the fringe of chartered space in the middle of the 21st century, as well as a brush with Lovecraftian existential horror with a sci-fi bent. This one was brought into being thanks to long-time listener Jameis Enright. The other options Jameis gave us were Evita, which we disliked immensely, or Disney's The Black Hole, which we had completely forgotten, despite seeing only a few years ago, apart from that awesome John Barry score. So we ultimately decided this one was the biggest mixed bag with which we could delve into and discuss. It's the checks mix of, uh, of this particular list. All right. Our guests include Lauren Grieve, who accompanied us on our Guillermo del Toro shows. Hello. Welcome. Uh, uh, hello. Thank you for having me back. Thank you for welcoming us to your show, Lauren. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's, it's nice to have you on again. Now, so. <laughs> I, I have to say, the number of people who were like, hey, if you ever need a third host, I think I know who you should invite. I was very touched. I was very touched. And also, Neil Taylor, the kid dog, without whom we wouldn't have done the Fast and Furious series, and who has been on more episodes of this than I can possibly count. Hello, Neil. We have such wonderful sights <laughs> to show you. <laughs> I'm not as good as Doug Bradley, sorry. <laughs> uh, if you don't like horror, folks, you might want to skip this one as it gets pretty extreme at times. Uh, and if you've not seen it, you might get more out of the experience if you listen to our show first, or you might prefer to go in knowing nothing. That is a choice that we leave to you. It should be really easy to find on DVD. Uh, although this does look really good in 1080p, I will add. Uh, this was directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, not to be confused with Wes Anderson or Paul Thomas Anderson. So if you ever see, say, I went to an Anderson season of movies last night, it could be anything. This man started out in the 90s with shopping, followed by Mortal Kombat, 
which I love, and we'll be doing a show on it next year. After this film, which he took instead of X-Men, he went on to film Alien vs. Predator, which we still like a hell of a lot. A hell of a lot more than the rest of the post-Alien sequels and spin-offs. And we recorded a show on AEVP back in 2012. He also gave the world the Resident Evil films, all of which we dislike with varying intensity, and all of which are adored by a specific audience who seem to like watching Alice get tested movie after movie. So this man has a career of distinct highs and lows, depending on your viewpoint. Here at School of Movies, we like to give you guys a little cultural context. If you were too young to see this in the cinema in 97, you might not appreciate the shift in landscape in cinematic horror and violence that had elapsed over the past two decades. Frankly, at 17, even I didn't really understand what was going on. In simple terms, it felt like everything bloody from the 70s and 80s was becoming tame and neutered and family-friendly. If you look at the popular series, and bear in mind, studios still didn't really know how to do a series... You would have seen a handful of tentpole horror franchises emerging, beginning with Halloween in 78, then Friday the 13th, then Nightmare on Elm Street. Each of these had grown increasingly silly and lost the prominence that their originators had in the market. Uh, Jason and Freddy had wilted with climaxes that very few enjoyed, and the unfulfilled promise of a versus feature... Michael Myers had gone underground with three crappy installments that nobody cared about. The Shining was a distant memory. Evil Dead had gone from disgusting indie original to a medieval romp, which, while still R-rated, felt weirdly family-friendly. I was certain that it was a PG-13. Apparently it was an R. You still get solid one-offs like Hellraiser and Candyman, but they just got shitty sequels to spoil what made the original great. And frankly, you could argue the same for Halloween, Friday and Nightmare, only they got more sequels so felt like a different animal. And in the realm of sci-fi, Ripley was dead, leaving the Alien trilogy completed with some harebrained idea of an imminent clone-starring sequel that would prompt the word quadrilogy into being. Predator had had two outings and then stopped with the unfulfilled promise of a versus feature. Robocop had gone from hard R social satire to family-friendly pigswill. Terminator, however, had gone from a hard R techno nightmare to the PG-13 blockbuster that would become the benchmark for the 90s. Terminator 2 showed studios that they could sell their adult properties to children. Jurassic Park, shortly after, repackaged a grim science nightmare novel unsuitable for children into another astonishing family-friendly success. Burton's dark, perverted Batman duology gave way to the lucrative animated series and Schumacher films. Cartoons and toy lines of all stripes cemented this new market. The direction always seemed to be the same. Create it for adults and then push it downwards towards the kids. The Ninja Turtles managed to attain a mania using this technique. The original Ninja Turtles comic was clearly made for adults, not kids. The uh, Mirage one. Uh, Not only was there a moral reason to shield children from violence in this gentler decade presided over by Clinton, there was a serious financial imperative. And Power Rangers was right there at this brightly coloured child level to pick up the slack once Turtles began to wane, with Saban's high school ninja champions achieving dominance, while all other studios tried to recreate the success of the Turtles from scratch, each of them failing. It was all about how do we get the kids? How do we get a mania? Can we have a mania, please? It was an era of cack-handed TV edits for violence and sex and language, butchering great, nasty films like Die Hard and Lethal Weapon into unwatchable gibberish. I used to call the old man funny names. 
Iron Butt, Bonehead. Once I even called him Airhead. The very concept of death was pretty much persona non grata within animated shows. All firearms had to be laser guns and consequences were rarely addressed. And this was easy to look back on later on as a phase that in hindsight created a hard pendulum swing back towards harder and harder violence in first hour horror movies as Scream rebirthed the slasher which gave way to torture porn and even though the pendulum then swung back towards PG-13 jump scare ghost films in the cinema our television sensations of the age went from stagey 90s sitcoms to banal reality TV to cinematic genre epics with talented serious actors and some of the most grisly attention-grabbing depictions of murder, rape and torture ever filmed. But when we were in the middle of it as young people it was easy to feel a sense of loss, of times now gone by, of overly zealous sanitization, like everything we wanted to experience was passed through a filter of acceptability by pushy, busybody moms who had no sense of proportion and attributed no positive value to the elements that they were excising, only negative. This may have contributed to the current wave of rampant misogyny that was always there but now feels more public, more self-righteous, more indignant. It's no wonder Hillary lost in 2016 to the swaggering, morally bankrupt, rich boy class bully if strict maternal protective figures deciding what was best for us had become such targets of hostile resentment. And it's easy to see how the current climate of fierce opposition to perceived censorship can have stemmed from there. How shockingly brutal long-form television has become the success story of our age. So imagine, if you will, being there in 1997, the most significant alien sci-fi of recent years being last year's family-friendly blockbuster Independence Day starring Will Smith and this year's family-friendly blockbuster Men in Black starring Will Smith and you're now sat in a darkened cinema about to watch something that would make your family puke. It's not that an R rating in any way equates to superior quality. It didn't help the similarly themed box office stinker Supernova three years later, and that's certainly not the grounding point of this piece. Matter of fact, the PG-rated Men in Black is vastly superior for me personally, the only link being that it's sci-fi, and was much more of a hit with audiences, netting $589 million on a $90 million budget. Event Horizon cost $60 million, the same as two Crazy Rich Asians, and it made a paltry 26 million domestic back, along with 27% freshness, with critics making this a serious dud that has nonetheless become a cult classic. And this equates to one of those movies that nobody saw, nobody liked, and it lost a bunch of money, but everyone you talk to about this is a fan somehow. A brief synopsis for those who haven't seen this. In 2040, the Event Horizon, a ship designed to explore space by creating wormholes, suddenly disappears. Seven years later, it reappears near Neptune and a rescue mission is sent to recover it along with the crew if they are still alive. The captain of this mission is Hiller, a no-nonsense Lawrence Fishburne. Then they bring along the designer of the Horizon, Weir, played by Sam Neill, who has been having terrible nightmares about his dead wife. When they're on the ship, everyone starts seeing things, and it would appear that wherever it went was very nasty, and the crew have been torn to shreds. To shreds, you say? They have to race to repair their own ship and escape before they are all killed by this malevolent vessel. 
I suspect what made it effective with audiences is its manner of drawing you in with familiar elements combined in an unusual way. And on tonight's show, we're going to discuss that alchemy, beginning with one simple question. How does Paul W.S. Anderson handle practical effects versus computer-generated effects? I know we have the term millennial rubber. What's the term for before we even got that far? Because wow, some of the CGI rubber is it has not aged well. Ah, millennial rubber only applies to when they try to get a human body to move like a human body, and they just can't. Uh, but uh, just you know, bad bad nineties CG will pretty Mercury much cover this rising. one. Mercury rising. Mercury. Because everything looks like blobs of liquid metal. Mercury, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no. It's, or you it's, could call it the, the reptile effect if you want to go for the worst graphics. Also Ooh. a W.S. Anderson film. Ouch, oh. below the belt, but true. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no. Um, it's definitely... Everything's too... Every time, especially the opening, uh, the shot of the asteroid and the shots inside the long, disorienting corridor, you just look at the go... That's early 90s video games, or late 90s video games. It just stands out, whereas when it switches over to a lot of the practical things, it's like, ew, icky, ooh. Yeah, it's um, yeah. it's it's a case of going, that's not a cup, that's not a watch, that's not a book. Well, and everything in that long hallway in the zero-grab scene has, like, a black border around it. It looks like it should be out of, like, Borderlands. And I'm like, <laughs> why, why is this? It's an artistic style. <laughs> Oh, did you notice what the actual book was? Yeah, it was Anderson's memoir or something. Yeah, it's Paul W.S. Anderson, A Life. Apparently most of the stuff out there have some kind of like little jokey reference, like the water bottle is named after yeah, some friend, friend of, of his. Theirs, yeah. 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 It's, it, it's, uh, it's a lot more of a funny, jokey movie uh, that they put together than the rather po-faced... Um, like, you could take it as a quite po-faced movie, but... Uh, I liked a lot of the model work that they did. Um, for the ships, like a lot, some of the ship shots are actually pretty nice. And that that shot um, in the very beginning, when they pull out from the window where uh, Sam Neill, uh, what's his character's name? William oh, yeah. Weir. Yeah, yeah, where he's standing in the window after after shaving, and he's like drinking the coffee, and it like pans out away from the space station and like spirals. Yeah. I really like that shot. I'm I'm not. I mean, apparently it was it was so hard to put together. It actually drove someone like a special effects artist out of the business because he was so frustrated from working on it. Wow. I love the design of the horizon, the event horizon, because it's basically a giant space crucifix mm. and has just internally has very interesting designs from the the extra long hallway to the the meat grinder entrance to the engine room. I just really think someone just went, ah, let's turn it up to eleven and see what happens. The structure is modelled on uh, Notre Dame Cathedral. Ah. The, the layout was very deliberately referencing the structure of a, a church and the, the cross shape reappears in several setups. And I think some of the outer imagery was deliberately referencing stained glass windows as well. But what really caught my attention was when it pulls back and you get the nose of the ship straight on. It looks like some kind of deep-sea terrifying fish, some huge whale with a massive mouthful of lit-up window teeth that's just going to swim through deep space, swallowing everything it comes across. Mm. I was just saying, not to mention just how huge it is. Whenever you first get to see it in comparison to the Lewis and Clark, like, that's just... 
I don't know, because the Lewis and Clark feels kind of big, kind of lived in, because you're seeing... I mean, they actually built the whole set, so it, it feels like a real place, kind of because it is. You're, you're seeing, like, a lot of characters in and around there, and it feels like a nice lived-in place. And then they show the Event Horizon, and it's just, like, on another level. It's another scale. The, the fact that it's uh, based on Notre Dame means it, it, it stems from the original Gothic architecture, so they've, they've got that. It, it, this is very deliberately a haunted house movie in space. Uh, it's a it's a it's a big building that uh, you shouldn't go into, and they go into it anyway. And the usual alien fashion, it's uh, we're we're trying to rescue somebody. We're trying to investigate this thing that's gone wrong before. We we, we certainly hope it, that things don't go wrong again. Oh no, they've gone wrong again. But uh, when I first saw the film, and for several viewings afterwards, I was convinced that the Event Horizon didn't look like this when it went through the hole the first time. And when it came back, it was all... like The back section of it, the actual the, the portal gate thing, it's like... So, we designed this, right? And, and he was like, well, no, more, add more flanges. Make it, make it look truly like a nightmare. I want a, a, a HR Giga-looking stuff. <laughs> If this doesn't look like something that Clive Barker would come up with, then I don't want to send it into space. It did strike me that gates to hell always seem to be in very close proximity, either geographically or aesthetically, to Catholic imagery or yeah. certainly Christian ones. I think I see a way out of this. Stop <laughs> building Christian buildings and they'll stop turning into gates of hell. <laughs> I really like that the door I really like that the door leading back into the actual uh, gravity gate area also has teeth because I know I like my pressure doors in a spaceship to have teeth. Well yeah. The, the, the teeth are, are kind of the most important part of any door. Yeah. Oh yeah. The, the teeth is what makes it work. I mean, all my doors have teeth. <laughs> all my doors have teeth is our Cradle of Filth cover band. Oh, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Uh, the, the long corridor as well. I didn't really notice this until the very end when you get the, uh, the fire and it lights it up in that deep red colour. Mm -hmm. But that corridor that leads to the back part of the ship is shaped like an eye, which means that when it's all ribbed and red, it looks like Weir's eye pits. Right. Ah. And uh, the doorways in the area that they they end up in with the gravity uh, beds to try to escape are coffin-shaped. I'm like, yeah, let's just, you know, imagery. Um, somebody read a book in symbolism. <laughs> <laughs> somebody didn't read a book on symbolism. We'll get to that later. I was just about to say, only the first chapter, though. Yeah, somebody else may have written a book on symbolism, and, and I'm sure Paul W. Sanderson was like, oh, that's good. So if you actually listen to him on the commentary, he sounds very personable, almost kind of posh. You can't underestimate the kind of shock that this movie when when it was shown to people I mean it really people were people, very distressed people were really really upset by it um, even by the level of of unpleasantness there is in it now I mean you can just imagine the kind of response to the the really hardcore version that we had originally and that response incidentally came from the studio as well and I think when they saw the finished movie that I presented to them and just saw how gruesome it was uh, they freaked out a little bit I, I think they didn't really know what to make of it you know, they, they paramount to the studio that are known for the Star Trek franchise, and I don't think this was quite the space movie that they had anticipated. Well, a main part of our problem with the film was that we had such a compacted post-production schedule that we were, we were testing the movie way too early. We were putting it in front of an audience before we really had a chance to refine the cut. And 
and the negative audience reaction just made the studio react against the film and so it was all the notes were cut cut make it shorter make it shorter make it shorter and I think if we'd had more time to work on it we could have we could have kept a lot of the more gruesome aspects if we'd had a chance to refine them. But uh, he's he's fun to listen to, and uh, he does he did a commentary with uh, Jeremy Bolt, one of the producers. And uh, there's a like, what, you know that that uh, the spinning shot at the beginning where you see we're in a space station and the camera pans out and it keeps spinning round and round. Um, Anderson mentioned that uh, there was a smudge on the window which was just driving him nuts, and Bolt pointed out, well, that just makes it look more realistic. The idea being that if it's too pristine, it looks unrealistic. Remember when we talked about the Star the Star Trek and how they made the panels on the Enterprise imperfect, even though it was a, a CG creation, deliberately to make it feel more like it was actually real and there? These are things that Anderson completely understands impractical, but in terms of CG, he just doesn't get it. Or at least the, the CG capabilities at the time, they were like, well, this is the best we can do. Texture, what are you talking about? Everything's shiny. And one presumes that at this point the CG artists are not experienced mm. enough and therefore confident enough to say, no, 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 you really do want it to look yeah. a bit scratched and a bit cracked. Yeah. How out, far out from T2 were we at this point? 97, uh, six years. Six years, so yeah, they were still definitely trying to get a a grip on it get away from the whole mercury thing yeah mm. yeah because that was generally the thing that they found easiest to do wasn't it which is ironic since we're about as far from mercury as we could possibly get right now but um oh. <laughs> so <laughs> speaking of that commentary though like the entire thing was either talking about technical aspects or just this like weird self-congratulatory banter and <laughs> the way that they fetishized the one actress was like real uncomfortable as i watched it Jolie Richardson, yeah, that's the one that Paul W.S. Anderson said. Is it just me, or does she look more sexy when you cover her in blood? And uh, Jeremy Bolt said, no, she's just attractive all the time, in a kind of, that's a really creep thing to say, Paul. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm really glad I've never listened to the commentary. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of that's, uncomfortable. Ooh. My notes for it are, like, just written, it's like, a couple things, but then written quotes of, plus she's hot, wow, this producer is kind of annoying. And then later, oops, Anderson is kind of obnoxious too. And then at the end, I noted that line you just quoted, Alex, and I was like, yeah, okay. They, they do manage to have two whole women in this, um, and although they're not quite mother and whore, they are certainly mother and sex object. Really? <laughs> yeah. The first thing that happens to Stark is she gets told to hit put on. her clothes on and hit on. Yeah. yeah oh. That. Oh God, Sharon, does that make the event Horizon the crone? It makes Ooh. her the Dark Woman. I like that. Um, um, they're, they're not quite as bad as John Milius and Arnold Schwarzenegger in the Conan the Barbarian commentary, but which is, I think, possibly maximum. Um, sleazy in terms of actual director's commentaries that I've heard so far but then you know there's, there's a bunch who I haven't listened to yet I was getting laid a lot in this movie huh? I know it was amazing just to listen to the women problems even then in this prehistoric times women were already in the jewelry huh yeah terrible waste to throw her over huh we kill so much beauty in this movie oh this is where the orgy yeah I remember she was like For me, it was really bad because I only listen to commentaries for coming on shows with you. And so that means that the only commentaries I've really heard are like 
Guillermo del Toro. Did you listen to Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch one? Uh, I, if I did, it was so long ago, I don't remember. Okay. But Del Toro spoils us for comedy. Yeah, no, he's the best. Oh, his yeah. Blade 2 one is fantastic. I think the Pacific Rim was probably my favourite one because we uh, listened to that, I was like, well, everything he says here elevates it above the popcorn that everyone else dismissed it as. And uh, it's, 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 it's being schooled, which I love. Okay, so question two. How accurate is the rescue of Mr. Justin in space? Because, uh, folks, just to, just to put this in perspective, uh, Mr. Justin is this uh, the, y- the youngster character who gets uh, possessed by the ship first and earliest. And he's called Baby Bear by most of the crew. And they all seem very, very concerned with his well-being. And they're always trying to you know, keep him protected and safe. And uh, he ends up possessed by the ship, flushing himself out of the airlock, realizing just as he's doing so, oh, shit, I'm about to go out the airlock. And then we get kind of a, a, a blow-by-blow of, of what happens when you get flushed out of the airlock, circa the information that, that who had available to them in 1997. Lauren, do you want to take this one? Well, I mean, generally speaking, so what they were trying to depict is explosive decompression, which is what they thought would happen if you got flushed out of an airlock in old sci-fi mm-hmm. and things like that. And the, the general concept is that for the longest time, people believed that the low-pressure environment of hard vacuum is the most dangerous part, which is deliciously naive in so many ways. Um, <laughs> and the the thing is, uh, they thought, oh, well, you know, the body is pressurized to hold the atmosphere out, so you remove the atmosphere, and then you just explode. You just splick, and that's the end of it. Like, your your lungs expand and rupture in your chest, your eyes pop out, your blood boils away. Like, these, these were all uh, things that people thought would happen. But that's not true if you were to ever get flushed out of an airlock let's say. Uh, First thing, you should definitely breathe out all of the air, just as Miller tells uh, Justin to do. Otherwise it'll get yanked out of you, right? Or your lungs will implode? No, it's the other way around. If If you take in a lung full of air, that air will expand because you no longer have any kind of atmosphere on you. But it's not going to explode out of your chest because the human body is surprisingly resilient. And, uh, but it could rupture your lungs which is very bad citation needed very bad so uh generally speaking you should breathe all of the air out and uh you'll probably pass out within 15 or 20 seconds because your body will use up all the oxygen really quick especially since your blood will also uh start to form little bubbles because the boiling point of some of the fluids in your body will start to basically turn them to gas and so it, it's it's very similar to the bends if you go underwater for too long and then come up too quickly. Oof. So, like, that'll be a bit of a problem, but not not unfixable. Um, and then it turns out that uh, it actually takes, like, two minutes to succumb to the cold because since there's a vacuum, there's actually nothing for your heat to dissipate so into very quickly. Right. Yeah. So it turns out that if you breathe all of your air out, close your eyes, because your eyes aren't going to burst. Your eyes are, again, surprisingly resilient, but they could frost over, which is bad. You close your eyes, cover your eyes, breathe out, and you're, you actually could be recovered within, like, two minutes, maybe two and a half minutes, and still make a full recovery, like if somebody were to pull you in. So if anything, Justin was in less danger in reality because, <laughs> like, he gets pulled in very quickly. It takes and about then four it, seconds. Yeah, and they make it, like, real bloody and real crazy. And it's it's very visually, like, disturbing, of course, but it's based on the information they had at the time. And I don't know 
I mean, I, I think they just discovered, like, oh, this is actually what would probably happen if you were put out in a hard vacuum. I mean, the worst part is if you were exposed to hard vacuum and then pulled back in, the amount of radiation that you would experience would basically give you cancer sometime in the future, and that's what you would eventually die from. Shit. So, I mean, you know, you, you, you get the bends, you possibly could have your lungs rupture you you know get really really cold and fried by the sun's uv but you can survive it i mean mr justin was probably going to have a rough time in like 30 or 40 years but i mean it's the future maybe they have ways to fix that okay not especially accurate but either way uh, but considering how quickly he was rescued close enough Oh, yeah. Like, he definitely would survive okay. uh, the experience. Strangely, looking into this uh, means that Guardians of the Galaxy is surprisingly realistic in a ways. I was just thinking that. And Sunshine also has a scene where they have to travel through open space. Oh, yeah. And the worst thing that happens is Chris Evans frosting. gets quite a lot of frostbite. Yeah. Oh, quite yeah. a bit of worse things happen to Harvey. No, but he mm. freezes, is my point. He doesn't yeah. explode. And, well, yeah. he does explode when he hits he, that fin. Yeah, but that's because he's frozen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so question three. What are the... Fo- this one could be quite expansive because it covers the whole movie. What are the forms horror takes throughout Event Horizon and which work best for you? I'm just trying to recover from the, the cheerful last section. I'm so sorry. I had to ask, but now I wish I didn't know. <laughs> yes, you know, evidently sometimes it's better not to ask. Um, so, so you have the, the psycho- psychological horror that it slowly begins to visit upon the crew with voices and visions, uh, stirring up, obviously, traumatic memories in the crew or any events. Oof. Uh, you have body horror in there. Body horror is always one that gets to me because that's usually the ah thing. So, you know, crazy Sam deal at the end is like, Bleh. and obviously you've got you, your shortcut jump scares because, man, it likes to go for those. Mm-hmm. Really? I'm so cold. you've got your gore and then you've got the unintentional how do i put it the 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 ship's log the the bits that they're trying to see it's often all the blanks and the things you don't see that obviously like to twist you can twist in your mind because often what you don't see or what you think you see is obviously a lot more powerful than anything they can ever show on screen well done i had pretty much exactly those written down and bullet pointed you pretty much hit every single one of them <laughs> yeah, I'm, like I said, though, it's, uh, it's odd. It's body horror always gets to me for some yeah. reason. Even even though I know it's special effects and stuff, it's um, especially because this film's got a thing for it. The 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 the, the missing eyes. So, oh, it just for some reason it hits straight into that button that just makes me go. Yeah. <laughs> One reason that I would say this film does not work brilliantly for me, or didn't doesn't always mm-hmm. it has to catch me in well, the right mood i think which bits yeah you can say it's, which bits were were downers well no it's the fact that there is that big long list mm. and 
Anderson kind of rapid fires them, mm. which means mm. that when he's using something like a creeping dread or a Lovecraftian existential despair, he doesn't give it time to really bed in. Mm-hmm. The the bit that gets me the most out of all of it, and it seemed weird watching it this time because there are so much worse things that happen and there are a couple of scenes that I literally can't look at because mm-hmm. they're just too horrible, but not in a horror way, just in a, ugh, that's going to make me be sick. You don't want it in your brain. Indeed. But the the scene where Peters is in medical mm-hmm. and she thinks she sees her son and she's trying to tell herself that can't be her son. Because one of the things that is most horrifying to me personally is that my own brain starts lying to me. Right. And that idea that hell is in your own brain... And wherever you go, and whatever you do, you can't get away from it, because you carry it with you. That's the most horrifying element for me, and I don't think that that got as much room to breathe as it maybe could have done. Hmm. I think that would make the film much more terrifying, because, especially towards the end, it relies far too much on the body horror and the gore to actually be scary, because after a certain point, body horror and gore... Yeah, I think you have that visceral reaction of, ooh, I can't watch no more, or you get tired of it. It hits a point of diminishing returns. Absolutely. What's the diminishing And ironically, it's actually Lawrence Fishburne's portrayal of Miller and the way he holds on to his sanity Hmm. in the face of all of this going on because of his own self-conviction that he did everything he could to deal with the situation that's resulted in his guilt and shame. Whereas there are other people who are like, their internal torment... Yeah, their internal torment is about things they haven't done. And they can never things really they failed get to over prevent. that. Exactly, because they, they will never be able to say, well, I did everything I could. Yeah. Ultimately, Miller can say, I did everything I could. It still wasn't enough and somebody died. I had to make a captain's decision. But I had decision. to make a decision... That's what happened, and he can say with complete conviction, you are not him, I saw him die, and that's what helps him hang on and not lose it in that moment. Mm. Fishburne's Miller is a a grounding point in in this film, and uh, considering what happens at the end, he's the kind of captain I'd want to have, like someone who would sacrifice literally everything for the safety of his crew. Hells yeah. You know who reminds me of? Caroline in Pitch Black. Yeah. At the end. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's uh, there's Creeping Dread, I've got on this list, which is punctuated with jump scares. Uh, now, I never actually jumped at any of them, because once you know where jump scares are, you gear up for them. So it's, well, it's kind of... It's difficult to add value to them, uh, so attribute value to them once you've seen the film multiple times. Karen and Neil? I was going to say, there is no value to jump scares, especially if you watched horror films, say, for the past decade. Hmm. They don't they work but they don't work you get the physical reaction but that that horror stuff is gone jump scares just for example i played the psvr game oh it's the the one that the until dawn guys did the inpatient a lot of that relies on jump scares and it's like two minutes in it just irritated me the first jump scare that isn't even a jump scare in this it's just a loud noise just to make you go Ugh. It's like, okay, I'm already irritated, and I've got how long of this? 90 minutes of this to go. 
Please well, don't overuse just, them. Please don't overuse them. Is it just prodding at your fight or flight button mm, yeah. for, for brief adrenaline bursts? Yeah, and in actual fact, mm. that was my beef with the lots of spinning at the beginning of the movie as mm. well, because it seemed done deliberately in order to mess up all your chemicals and disorient yeah. you, so that you you kind of go in open to the adrenaline boosts that everything else is going to give you. Mm. Mm. Well, so the, the I think the real problem with jump scares specifically is that everything in the scene and the sound design and everything like that is adding tension. It's mm-hmm. building you up. And then the jump scare happens and it just all goes away. It relieves then, the tension because the audience jumps and then all laughs because they've all heard each other jump. Right. And, and laughter the better, kills fear. Yeah. The better horror films that we've even talked about on here have kind of more of a wave pattern where like the tension ramps up, but it never really... Like it never climaxes essentially. Like it never happens and then goes back down and then comes back up a little higher and then goes back down. And it's just like this slow rising motion. And the the old idea that people would get too worn out from being tense just doesn't seem to hold up in more modern horror films that are like more deliberate, less jump scary. It's the reverse. Uh, the constant uh, uh, deliberate relief of tension through jump scares is what wears you out. Yeah. Yeah, it, it brings you too far back down, I, I think. Yeah, oh, uh, peak drop, peak drop. Speaking of which, pretty much everything yeah. Cooper said was funny because he he's, you know, he's a funny guy. A- he's a rescued technician. Now we all know each other. Skipper, I got a question. Sure. What the fuck are we doing way out? Any questions? How do I get out of this chicken shit outfit? You secure that shit, Hudson. Well, fuck layman's terms. Do you speak English? In the climax, when he's, he gets blown away, uh, you know, out into space, you're like, oh my god, Cooper's gone. He was the funny guy. And then he's like, oh man! Shit! Where the fuck am I going? Why is this shit gonna happen to me? And there's a little bit of uncomfortable he's the funny black guy in there it's not quite as bad as uh, a Michael Bay film but it's still <laughs> mm, a little bit and but because of that like he's still being funny funny he's like here I come motherfuckers that kills any sense of oh my god this is existential horror writ large this is the end of oh here's the funny guy come on come on yes 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 it's not like Star Lord, but like if if um it, hmm, if Star Lord was a support character in Doctor Strange, he would step on the drama. You know, there's a reason that Hudson dies at the point where shit just gets real in Aliens, where it becomes about Ripley and her terrible relationship with death and her daughter figures. There's no room for Hudson there, and there's really no room for Cooper here when Weir's talking about going to a dimension of pure anguish. At least he lived. I mean, I was happy to see yeah. one of the black guys live in a horror film from this era. And actually, yeah, the fact that uh, Fishburne was the other black guy, not at all, um, you know, uh, playing uh, to type. And we, in fact, the original character was just going to be uh, some white Texan guy like Dallas from Aliens. His casting ever so slightly dissipates the sort of the ill feeling about uh, Cooper. It's weird because this film makes two fantastic casting choices mm-hmm. So in, in Fishburne and Sam Neill. Although Sam Neill is a bit of a weird one where you consider he's technically played the, the son of the devil. So it's like casting, was it Gabriel Byrne in Ghost Ship? 
Yeah. Weird. Uh, technically, it makes three fantastic casting uh, choices uh, with uh, Hello to DJ Sir Isaacs as uh, oh, yeah. DJ, but it doesn't do anything with him. So that's uh, a great casting choice, poor character work. Uh, it would be good to, to see his fears elaborated upon and yeah. his character. Okay, did anyone else just see Sean Pertrin go, and how long are you going to be alive for? Yeah, he, I don't think I've ever a, seen him live in anything. He lasted a lot longer than, uh, than normal for a Pertwee. Yeah, so there, there's the creeping dread, the jump scares, spooky ghost chase that sort of happens through it in the midsection of the film, which then gives way to gory slasher. Then sci- like, it starts to ramp up, up the sci-fi heavy effects, which in some ways kind of harken back. The creeping dread is accentuated by the remains of what happened to the previous crew of the event horizon. You're like, what the fuck happened here? No one ever like points at the, 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 the remains of the crew that sort of slathered on the walls and goes, ah, they've become a paste. What the hell? No one goes, why are we having a meeting on the bridge? In front of the remains of their crew. Yeah, can we I find this a little bit in space? They turned into pizza. There is one bit actually where after her experiences down in the med bay, Peter's they ask Peters to keep reviewing the the logs to see mm-hmm. if she can get any more information. And she says, Well, I'll go and have a look at them on the bridge, but I'm not going back to medical. And I'm like, Are you out of it, lady? There's people not going pate anywhere on the bridge. wall. <laughs> Well, yeah. not to mention the fact that after they turn the thermals on and have oxygen flowing ooh, through it again, ooh, ooh, those are going to smell real bad. Yeah. Uh, that, of course, gives way to the insane torture porn of the actual, uh, exactly what happened to the crew, where they, uh, if you haven't seen it, folks, they literally fucked each other to death and uh, had a really terrible time doing it as well. No one's having fun. And there's little flashes, and it's it's pretty fucking extreme and they toned it down from what they'd originally uh, attempted to do i will give them this it's a little thing but i'll give it to them they could have made this into an eli roth now ladies i'm going to make you all hurt like really victimizing the women in this particular scenario but there's a lot of guys getting a lot of horrible things done to them in those it's equal opportunity torture porn it is so to that end, I kind of applaud it for, for them not going just for the women. And then when it's uh, there's flashes of what could happen to the crew later at the end that uh, Weir gives to uh, Miller, again, a lot of Mr. Justin, uh, a lot of uh, Cooper in there as well. It's not just the, the, the fixation. Yoli, have I got some fun for you. On... Uh, <clears throat> on stock but uh but but yeah it's like i say it's a small thing but you know we're not going to describe what happens uh in the actual you know blood orgy but it, 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 it's it's suffice to say, it suffice to say it's pretty horrible and if you've got a pause button on the uh, dvd player be prepared to be there for a good 10 minutes going Ugh. Although, I will, I will <laughs> why would you pause there there was oh if you watch some of the making of stuff they actually show you it like they hold the frames. Still frames, and it's like, please. They're no. proud of it. But there's, there's Anderson no considers them to be quite painterly. <laughs> well, if you, you say what so. What paintings so. are you looking at, mate? Goya. There's, there's one bit. Where <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> I wasn't going to tell you this. I've been listening to the distress signal, and I am um, think I made a mistake in the translation. The 
Well, it doesn't sound awesome. They were talking about somebody, and the thing that flashed through my head was, oh, that's his arm. Because I always <laughs> assumed it was someone else's. Well, it, uh, <laughs> it just seems like a very difficult... There's easier ways to do what he attempts to do and no! succeeds at. Well done. Absolutely. Give yourself a round of applause. There's oh, wait. your millennial rubber. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is why you don't show because this is what happens. Yeah. You've just robbed all of it of anything because it's turned into comedy, rightly so. Well, I mean, but you've like, robbed yourself of the horror. I, when I saw, we saw it at the cinema, I, I remember the audience shuddering. I don't remember anyone laughing at that point. Uh, but I mean, you know, like, it, it'd be difficult to tell what a modern day audience would think of this because I think in some ways it would be more appreciated. It would certainly make more than the 27 million it made. And in some ways, I think it would become a little bit of a laughing stock for being so po-faced. I think we're now past the to Eli Roth. Oh, post Eli Roth. Oh, yes. hate that man. Hate that man so much. It'll come back um, around. Hate his work. Should I say probably not the man? Um, but, um, I think they'd try and gore it up. You'd see more. And I think it would work less Hmm. because, again, what works here is when you're showing little and in flashes and letting the mind do the work because the the best way to best horror is always when you let the mind do all the hard work for you. Yeah. It it means you're not underestimating your audience. You're crediting them with dark imaginations, uh, which you just give them the ingredients for, Mm. and they'll piece it together. Which you've got to assume they have. Mm. Otherwise, why are you thinking they'll like this? Which leads us to Lovecraftian existential horror, which is threaded through there, and I kind of wish there'd been more of it and less of the rest of it. It would have required a lighter touch and a more steady hand. Uh, But also Paramount got really edgy throughout production. And uh, they originally the film was two hours, ten minutes long. They made them cut and cut and cut until it was an hour and 35 minutes. That is a lot of film to remove. And so that's, that's inherently changed the pace of what the film was originally written as. I'm not sure that it necessarily needed to be longer. And I certainly don't feel that it would have been better if it had been more explicit. But it's possible that with a bit more running time and a bit more focus on other elements not just the horror we could have it would have been easier to engage with mm. or, or, or more apt to engage with if not easier i personally think it would be better it would have been better if it had been slower there are some scenes that i think are too quick and the pace runs along at too much of a clip for it to really bed in especially early in the film mm. It's a, it's a fine balancing act to, to, to get that existential dread to build up right and to execute it. So, yeah, taking, what, 45 minutes out of the film may not have helped that. Especially considering who this director is, he would have probably gone to the, ooh, gribbly monsters mm. more than the ooh, existential dread. Yeah. Indeed. Lauren. Well, apparently an original version of the script actually had some kind of alien monsters on it, but they removed those pretty early. But the the film itself is such a weird combination of uh, long takes and then quick edits Hmm. in a way that's like really disconcerting. Because apparently they actually had a long take that was Weir walking through the entirety of the Lewis and Clark Mm -hmm. to actually establish the space. And that's kind of cool, but they cut it for, for time and and things like that and and since you know you were talking about the orgiastic death scene 
Uh, I actually kind of enjoyed watching that from a weird perspective because I used to work in a haunted house. So, like, some of the imagery, I was just kind of like, oh, I know how you make that. Like, (laughs) there was something about it that I really enjoyed in that respect. Kind of reminded me of the old days. But it does also lead to, like, two of my favorite scenes, Mm -hmm. which is in the very beginning, whenever he says something about, uh, oh, we have a single transmission from it. And they're all sitting there in that, like, really great shot where they're, like, on two different levels. And everybody's finally like, okay, this is serious business. Like, we need to listen to this guy. And he just plays the audio from it. And they're all just so straight-faced. The whole time, I'm just like... At this point, it would be like, okay, yeah, no. Just yeah, no. I, 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 you hear that recording, you go, fuck no. <laughs> Ship full nope. of nightmares, fuck no way. No. <laughs> well, and then later on, when they finally get it so they can see the footage uh, from that thing, and they're all just sitting there, and there's a beat, and then Miller says, we're leaving, and just... <laughs> that was intentionally that so funny, good. and that is great dry delivery with perfect timing. And uh, it, it's supposed to be with the audience of, of uh, like... After you've seen this, folks, nothing's going to keep you on that ship. Mm, absolutely. There's a point where Sean Pertwee says, there's no way I'm getting on that bastard. And I'm like, yep. yes, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> he says that at the start when they clamp on. I'm with him at the start. He's like, yeah. sensible man. Mm-hmm. Uh, Smith, his character, he's, he's a fairly simple, straightforward guy, very meat and potatoes. And he's clearly the voice of the audience. So it feels kind of like he should have been in it more because he's the one who's got to bring everyone down to earth and go, no, this is mental. We've got to leave right now. Although I suppose he'd just have been like this one note guy, like, you know, you're calling back Smith. You know, what are your thoughts on this current situation? My thoughts are basically exactly the same, sir. We need to leave right now. (laughs) My thoughts are, we're fucked. (laughs) Yeah. That's it. Well, it's kind of important for him to not be around so much because he doesn't want to be there in a real specific way because he's the pilot. And so, like, his connection is to Lewis and Clark. So he's entirely focused on fixing that. Each of the characters ends up meeting a fate related to either their regrets, their guilt, their fears. Mm. Some of them are obvious. So like what what Peter's, it's like the little kid chases the little kid around like, oh, like you can walk. Why are you here? I'm crazy. And then falls off and dies. But uh, what was his name? Words. Oh yeah. That, that's word for word. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very good at acting that scene. Mm. Um, but what was the other guy? DJ, the one who gets red angeled mm, uh, yes. at the end. Of the... So he's that's, got... Uh, Jason Isaacs, folks. Okay. There's a there's a single shot that shows that he has a huge scar down his torso from a previous surgery. Mm-hmm. So he apparently actually has some kind of fear of surgery that's just only – it must have been cut. There must have been some kind of establishing version of it. Uh, and, and so that's like why he gets that end. And then uh, Smith – Schmitty, as they keep calling him. I'm like, why is his name Smith? Um, Schmitty. Uh, he His whole thing is he's worried about the ship, and so he's the one who's on it when it blows up. Mm. And, like, it, like, they each... Every character that dies, dies in a way that is appropriate for their own guilt or fear or that kind of thing. But, so I actually have a question for, for you, Alex, because mm-hmm. you are a writer person. Mm-hmm. And we're... His his uh, ex-wife, his wife, his dead wife, what Claire. was her name? Claire. Why wasn't she on the ship? Like, I feel like why she should have been on the original crew for the event Horizon, and that's where his guilt came from, mm. that she disappeared because of his own creation, and he wasn't entirely sure what happened to her, rather than, 
oh, she killed herself because Weir didn't pay enough attention to her, which is like what they imply, which feels really strangely undercutting of what they could have done in the script. If I had written it and I was trying to work within the parameters and not change it too much, I uh, would probably have done precisely that had her been one of the original crew so that Weir was very attached to the ship because he felt like it was her. He could feel the soul of her in the ship because also, that's important. He, he basically falls in love with the ship. And when he first starts getting hints of her being there, there could then be this slight tension of, is that actually her? We know it's not, but he's got mm. enough enough doubt in his mind to question it. At this stage, we're talking Monster House, the uh, Image and Movers digital film, which is way better. Also, yes. fundamentally, this ship has become, I'm going to say Pennywise, because it makes more sense than just saying it, but it's the it's the Cthulhu beast that knows what you fear, and mm. they're, particularly in the flashes of Peter's son running around, is very Georgie Deborah. Yeah. And mm. the the thing that can get hold of you and get hold of your fears and your anxieties and use them to torment you, the immediate question, at least for me, is why? What does it get out of it? And it occurred to me that the process of travelling to this other dimension and coming back has resulted in the ship being alive, a creature that wants a soul, and it can't have one, so it's stealing bits of the people that board it hmm. and stitching so them together the, to make its own soul. I have no mouth and I must scream kind of thing. Yeah. The, the way that Gum um, sews together his costume in Science of the Lambs, he's making himself into something else, and for that he needs victims that he covets the bodies of. Like you said, the ship itself wants to be human. That that seems to be like a dropped storyline or just something they didn't really capitalise on. It certainly is now alive in a way it wasn't before and well, seems to crave to be more than what it is. Yeah, to have more life and more fear and more anxiety come in so that it can absorb more. And that is the fundaments of a haunted house movie, which Anderson is not shy about admitting that's what he was making mm. here. And the the haunted house of tradition has absorbed the negative emotions of the people who've passed through it. It's not the house itself that is... It's not the girl, Vegman, it's evil, the building. for want of a better term. It's the it's what it's absorbed from the people who've passed mm. through it. Yeah, because it's never the happy house on Haunted Hill. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the happy house on Haunted Hill. But, you know, people do say there are houses and buildings that feel nice, that feel cosy and, and comforting because they've absorbed, because they've absorbed positive yeah. uh, atmospheres. Yeah. Psychic manifestations. commentary they say that this is the haunting plus the shining by way of 2001 a space odyssey uh, that's going to With, be my next question what are the clear influences here please elaborate on all of those that that you saw that you detected within the film what what is exemplary of those particular influences well so the thing is though i feel like so many of them are so heavy-handed like there's a direct homage to the shining mm. in one of the scenes with the, the blood flowing everywhere there's a direct homage to the oh, haunting and the bathtub scene in uh, uh the shining as well when he oh yeah yeah and 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 then you even mentioned kind of the the uh the it pennywise connection i mean they even mentioned that the kid had a raincoat on 
kind of to symbolize that, to, mm. to be in that direction. That direction being that both the film It, which does this much more than the book, and Event Horizon are riffing very heavily on Don't Look Now. It's strange to me because all of the homages that I saw, anyway, are so heavy-handed that it's basically like they just like, oh, well, how can we do this scene? Like, even the blood at the end out of the, the fluids in the gravity bedroom, I don't there's no real reason for it. It's just, it just happens. Like it's clearly not a psychic manifestation. It's clearly not a hallucination. Like most of the other things are. The ship is literally bleeding. Yeah. And it it just seems like a strange choice at that moment. It's like the engine, the engine's the lab. Oh God. What's it? The lamentation configuration. Mm, The cube from Hellraiser. Yeah. Yeah, It's literally that. Well, they they said that they even literally based its design off of, uh, what's it, Lacard's cube or whatever it is that is the lamentation configuration. Like, that's intentional. Uh, But also uh, when uh, Claire says, we have such uh, wonderful things to show you, that's... uh, We have such sights to show you. And so alone. You'll never be alone again. You're with me now. You're with me. Such wonderful, wonderful things to show you. We have such wonderful sights to show you. There you go. It's paraphrasing the Cenobites. Yeah, and it's not really in a, not in a coy way either. It's going, hey, it's like you, you get that. <laughs> it's going yoink. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you went to NASA and said, this is my design yeah. for our next spaceship, I have based it on the works of Clive Barker's The Books of Blood, yeah. they'd send you home. <laughs> no, was... no, we've got a 12 o'clock with the um, guy who designed it after a church. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, There was a little bit of feeling that I had of another film called uh, In the Mouth of Madness, which I believe came out many years later from here. But um, Oh, no. Uh, In the Mouth of Madness was before this. It was 1993. It was uh, Sam Neill. Was it? Yeah. Oh, so that's the other film that I associate Sam Neill with, which is, I guess, either says a lot about myself or something else that I don't immediately associate him with Jurassic Jurassic Park Park and Hunt for the Wilder People. But. I've definitely seen the Jurassic Parks, but there's just something about In the Mouth of Madness that just sticks with me. I don't know. It's it's weird. So, there aren't many Lovecraft uh, direct adaptations. Yeah, not that well. But so I'm, I'm thinking here as we're talking about these homages and, and such, that list of films that you said at the beginning that Anderson was associated with, like, is this the best one that he did? And if so, was he just trying to put in scenes from as many films as he could think of and made it good by accident? Mm-hmm. I think his best one's Mortal Kombat, but that's personal choice. <laughs> I mean, that's that's fair. I do prefer this film over Mortal Kombat, but most of those other films are not good. H.P. Lovecraft influenced both Stephen King and Clive Barker, but it and Hellraiser don't necessarily mix well together. The Haunting and The Shining are both stories about buildings that are influenced by the bad things that go on inside, and Alien and Aliens are both fantastic depictions of an inhuman creature. But all of these films, helmed by very different directors, take very different approaches to how to shake people up. 
Don't Look Now and Solaris are both films about inability to cope with grief, but again, their philosophical reasoning and what they have to say are wildly different. When you replicate your influences, you have to blend the bits that work best together. And I say this as someone who constantly has to walk this tonal tightrope with New Century. Most of all though, if you took the more overt references away and left everything else, there has to be something that can stand on its own. And it, it's just weird to me because I really enjoy this film on a bunch of different levels and, and like really like what it has going on. But as I was listening to the commentary, I'm like, oh, he didn't intend for any of this. Mm. He was just like, oh, I really like The Shining, so I'm going to do that in my film. Oh, I really <laughs> like The Haunting. I'm going to do that in my film. And, and I was like, what am I even listening to? It was a weird, like, seeing the man behind the curtain kind of moment. And I really have to wonder, like, how accidental, like, the quality of this film is. In that sense, it has the quality that good horror has, which is the ability to present the audience with something that they can interpret their own way and through their own filters and then create their own horror from what they've been what's been put in front of them. And I think the trick with a lot of horror is doing something which is sparse enough that you don't step on any of the audience's interpretations while still meaty enough to give them enough to work with. There's uh, definite references to the black hole in here, but uh, and also there is a huge chunk of Andrei Tartakovsky's Solaris, uh, based on the book by what's his name Stanislav's Lem, because we watched the 2002 remake, which obviously came out uh, five years after uh, this film. Uh, That's this the evening. Clooney one, isn't it? The, the Clooney one, yeah. Uh, uh, produced by Cameron, directed by uh, Steven Soderbergh. The original, uh, yeah, Stanislav Lem uh, wrote the original novel in 61. The Tarkovsky film was uh, 72. And this film came out in 97. And the writer of Event Horizon, Philip Eisner, clearly, manifestly went, right, I'll take the, the concept of Solaris and just wholesale put that. That's what most of my uh, story is about. Weir and the relationship with his wife, whom he blames himself for uh, her suicide, that is wholesale Solaris. Lem, uh, the uh, writer of the original book, didn't like Soderbergh's version because he said it was too focused on the, the romance side of it. As far as he was concerned, so much more of it was about the planet itself. Uh, only whereas Solaris is a, a, a philosophical drama about the nature of existence, possibly even transcending the physical and what it means to be human. But to achieve this, a man journeys from Earth who's grieving for his lover who committed suicide when their relationship didn't work and who blames himself for her death, now encounters her on the space station and begins doubting his own sanity. That is a, a big old chunk of Event Horizon. The other major part of it is, of course, Alien. That's the one that, if you watch it, Anderson is really trying to evoke. If you notice that most of the crew members are wearing the exact same uh, olive green jumpsuit as Ripley in the original Alien. So they're all in, in Ripley cosplay. 
uh, except yeah. for Weir, who's wearing the dark blue navy jumpsuit of the untrustworthy bishop in Aliens. Uh, and the uh, director of photography, Adrian Biddle, who actually does a really smashing job in this, uh, was uh, DP on Aliens. He was the guy who was brought in after the first guy who was a cinematographer was like, right, I shall light the Alien Queen's lair so you can see every single nook and cranny. And uh, Cameron went, that's not what I want at all. And he said, I think I know how to be a cinematographer, sir. So Cameron said, right, you're fucking out of here. And then brought in Adrian Biddle. So it's weird. You get this, this, this odd contradictory feeling where... Clearly he's trying to evoke Alien, but he's got the DP from Aliens. And those are two quite different films to look at and, and to feel. It's most notable at the end when uh, the, the window blows out and there's that you know terrible rush out into space as, as sort of the, the air's all flying out and Lawrence Fishburne as Captain Miller is holding onto a cable and the strobes are going, and there's, there's dry ice going everywhere. It's, it's like the insides of uh, fire extinguishers. I turned off the sound and stuck on Bishop's Countdown as soon as this started. It times up perfectly. <laughs> I don't want to say that Anderson uh, used that uh, for his, uh, his timing. Uh, I do know that Anderson wasn't happy with that sequence and said that it lacked a sense of urgency. But I think that just comes down to the fact that we've seen that in Aliens. We've seen that in Total Recall. We are pretty sure that Miller's going to get out of it. So the way it's blocked doesn't promote tension. Uh, But it feels really like Aliens. I think you might have hit on something there. We discussed, when we were watching it, tone problems and tone clashes. And I said it does have two very distinct tones that I actually think in places blend quite well. So I certainly didn't feel like it was much of a problem, but I think you may have identified what those two tones are. There are points when he's trying to achieve the tension of a horror movie, and there are points where he's trying to achieve the tension of an action movie, and those are two very different kinds of tension. Two disciplines, yeah. And I don't know how skilled he is with either of them, to be honest. But I think he's better with action than he is with horror. Yeah. Having suffered through most of the Resident Evils, hmm. it's debatable, but he's definitely more akin to action than horror. Mm. I, 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 I hate all the Resident Evils. They are such a disappointment, and they get, yep. to me, worse and worse. I, I know a lot of people love them. I, I don't think we're ever going to do a show on them, because there's nothing to talk about. Like People go, oh, well, the first one's actually really good. No, to it's me, not. it's not. It's Considering how much I love the original game, they had the makings there of a really great, tense, kind of bullet-low thriller set in a claustrophobic house. Think about how fucked they are in Aliens after the dropship crashes. It's that level of, okay, what have we got to stay alive on that these films could have harnessed? Instead, it's just Mila Jovovich kicking dogs in slow motion because The Matrix was popular. I like the idea of it not necessarily being an exact remake of the game. It doesn't have to necessarily be exactly what happened in the first, now classic, PlayStation original Resident Evil. Because at least, you know, you'd be just waiting for it to play out the events you already know. I like the what he did, which is to have something taking place parallel to it, or just before. But if it had felt like the Mansion incident, and I'm still waiting for them to make that film, I, I think it would have... Set the series off in a completely different way. And I resent the Resident Evil films because their crapulence bled into 
the game series and, and the Resident Evil games went from four, which was by all accounts everyone seems to love. I'm not as much of a fan as I am of the GameCube remake two. of the original Resident Evil or of two or, or Nemesis. But, you know, four was a great quality game. Then there was five, which was a downslide, and six, which was terrible. <laughs> and then the Racco- Operation Raccoon City, and it's oh, taken Oh, please, no, to, yeah. no. There's, there's reasons. There's one bright side of not doing YouTube at the minute is not having to go to the yeah. bad side of the Resident Evil town. It's turned those games, or it did turn them until Biohazard came along, into these farcical, you know, larger-than-life action films, which they weren't originally, and it wasn't a great fit for the series. Mm, I think- there's plenty of action games out there. What, what you say there about the difference between the, the Resident Evil games and certainly the early ones and what he did with the films, mm. that's what I mean. I didn't realise that's what I meant, but when I say about the difference between the two types of tension, horror and yeah. action, what he's done with the Resident Evil films is top-down. So what you're seeing is... The scientists making a mess of everything, resulting in the zompocalypse, you idiots, you blew it up, etc., etc. That's a very different kind of tension to what happened here in it and you being it being first person this is all happening to me it's terrifying i can't get out of it and i wonder if that comes down to his personal perspective and he finds it very difficult to put himself in Mm. that i'm in the middle of all of this emotive tension and i can't Technically, he tried that with Alien vs. Predator, Mm. and uh, it still comes off as... Because he keeps cutting back to the Predators Mm. as much more of an action film. If he were with some really great, well-written, solid human characters that you wanted to survive this thing, uh, it would be much more of a a, a tense movie. But instead, you're with these numpties that you can't wait to get killed so that the the WWE wrestler Predators (laughs) can fight the aliens. It's literally a fate that befalls quite a lot of franchises. Aliens, a, the Alien franchise sort of fell that, and then it fell under crazy Uncle Ridley's control, which is a whole other bag of cats. <laughs> Uncle Ridley. Well, if you keep putting guys in charge of these films who are running the whole thing like a like a games master, and like these are all my little figures, and I'm sat here in my tower, and I'm moving them all <laughs> around on the tower. board, and I can control them and make whatever I want to happen to them. You're not getting any of the personal hmm. impact of what's what's going on. A Del Toro alien film, please. <laughs> he I, would I, get I, that. I would, I, would be nice. I would, I would just settle for that Neil Blumenkamp okay, one that yeah. he, we almost got. Me too. Yes. Oh no! Screw I, you, actually, Ridley. I, I've got I've got nine more Alien films on me. I think. So wait. After all that conversation, though. So let me pitch you Event Horizon based on what we just said. So you take the ship from Alien because the Lewis and Clark was built to look like the Nostromo, <laughs> but we're going to take the tension from Aliens and the main villain from In the Mouth of Madness, mm-hmm. and we're going to put him on a ship that has the cube from Hellraiser, and there's going to be scenes from The Haunting and The Shining and Solaris and It, and it's going to be all like 2001 because it's in space. And then they that go into a black like hole at the end. That sounds like it should be awesome. That and, sounds like it should be really, really awesome. And it is. But at the same time, like, how derivative can you be? Mm. And and that's what I mean when I said, like, was this an accident? Was it just, oh, I saw these films? I think it is that happy accident. Because, uh, forget pushing Mortal Kombat aside, which I do genuinely enjoy and is probably my favorite of his films because it's the enjoyable one. This is probably this to me is his second best one, but again, personal taste. But you look at the other stuff, there's nothing in there of, of merit mm. or of 
anything. It's like, hell, even the cool action scenes that he has in some of the Resident Evil movies are ripped directly from cutscenes of the game. The the helicopter swooping across the building, firing the miniguns as Alice runs away and then down the side. Uh, you know, that's from Code Veronica's oh, opening. So uh, the big question really is, is why can't we go deeper? And I think we've already kind of answered ourselves here, but why can't we do what we normally do at School of Movies and say, right, so symbolically speaking, this means this? Because the director isn't capable of it. There was nothing intended. When I sat down to watch this film, like, because the way that I study up before coming on here is I watch the film once with nothing else. I just take notes of my reaction, how I feel, what I think, and then I watch the commentary and behind-the-scenes things. And as I was going through the commentary, I just kept, like, making these notes and remarking, like, wow, they really didn't intend for this. Like, they didn't really plan it. It was just like, oh, here's a script. We like the script because I can do these things. I just came off of uh, Mortal Kombat, which is a PG-13. I really want to make something R, you know, something different, something fun. And and then they, like, make this film where they're, like, things work. Like, the, the actors got a lot of leeway in personalizing their characters, which works really well for the most part. The, the camera work is really well done for the most part. The the model work is again pretty well done for the time. The CGI less so. Uh, the set but they, design is really good. Oh yeah, the set design is incredible. It was Pinewood, so they've got that heritage. It's, you know, obviously with with Alien and Bond in there as well, and uh, so <laughs> it, it feels constructed by you know hardworking hands. Yeah, yeah, and so many effects were practical, and so many of the actors actually did their stunts, like, in camera. Like, the, like a lot of the... When the Lewis and Clark's bridge blows up with the gravity wave, like, those are the actors. Those are not stunt doubles. Those are actual explosions going off. And it's... It, it feels surprisingly, like, real, but there wasn't any intent usually whenever we're sitting here talking about these things we can we, you know like sharon and i always have our moment talking about the mother maiden and the crone and you know we made the joke at the beginning that we've got a mother we've got a maiden and then oh maybe the ship's the crone but that is so much more us just shoehorning that kind of joke in that we always talk about rather than even the like cultural zeitgeist being worked into this film because all Anderson wanted to do apparently was ape other films he saw and I'm honestly like surprised that it works so well at least for me uh, but it's it's shocking to me how hollow it is mm. I think there's two things specifically that are implied heavily purely by the structure of the script and the plot that are explored not one whiff mm. and that's a all of the by necessity christian imagery that ties in with the fact that they hint at they've been to hell and back mm. there is no exploration of that at all and b and this does actually kind of tie in with it the man was not meant to meddle with this implication of the the sheer 
arrogance, if you like, that goes with, right, we're so desperate to create a means of travel that's faster than the one we have, that we'll fold space in half in order to get from point A to B without any thought of what happens to the things that are in the space they fold. There could be planets and civilizations and all sorts in there, and they're effectively using a gravity well to suck them all together like a drawstrung PE bag just so that they can travel a distance that otherwise they couldn't do. And there's no real, we shouldn't be doing this. And that they could have done a whole subplot line about... The this is God chasing it, you with images of hell to punish you for doing this. It, it literally needs the Ian Malcolm scene from Jurassic Park. I was thinking that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. It, it just seems baffling that those two fundamental structural points can be in it and not be looked at mm. any deeper. I mean, you could, uh, you got Jason Isaacs right there. Mm. A scene with him wherein he says it's not my place to say and then they keep pushing him and eventually he sort of blasts Weir with, you didn't fucking realise that folding space would result in catastrophe? Like, what was the best you thought was going to happen with zero repercussions? This is the thing, though. A lot of the films that we that, that I keep mentioning, they have, like, themes. Like, even, like, really basic themes. Even the idea of, like, science is dangerous, science is bad, or something like that, where, or, or like, capitalism is bad in, like, the alien films, almost, because they're just trying to exploit, like, the workers, they're trying to exploit the xenomorphs and things like that. Mm. But in this film, it's like, what's bad? Hell? I mean... I guess, sure. Like that's a thing. That, that feels like that it should fall in the no shit category mm. of yeah. things. Yeah. We well, watched and- today Deep Blue Sea, which somehow managed to be ever so slightly more philosophical than this, because the whole <laughs> film, weirdly, and Honest Trailers pointed this one out, is kind of pro God and Jesus. There's there, there's a, a point where Stellan Skarsgård says, you know, not his work, ours. The scientists engineered super smart sharks to combat Alzheimer's. Something which, by the way, absolutely horrifies me, the prospect of seeing our loved ones slip away from us. There's a running theme of that in New Century. But they're effectively playing God with what some might consider the natural deterioration of the human mind. You know, if you wholesale believe the Bible, you believe that the Lord works in mysterious ways and he afflicts our loved ones with Alzheimer's on purpose. So working against that is working against God. And if you subscribe to evolution, you'll understand that not too long ago, our bodies used to start failing us and dying of old age in our 30s and 40s. We haven't yet evolved physically to the point where Alzheimer's is no longer a thing. And the dangerous science they dabble in here is all about circumventing that. But the super-religious character, uh, Preacher, he gets them all to pray at the end. They talk about the devil. You know, he stabs the shark in the eye with a crucifix. And he survives while the godless scientists all get eaten. But yeah, it's it's, it's weirdly pro-god. Now, I'm not saying a pro-god, anti-science agenda makes your film better. It's certainly a bold tactic in a sci-fi, a genre well-renowned for inspiring scientists all around the world and confounding and annoying the devoutly religious. But it's a statement. It has a statement and it follows through on its themes, something which this film kind of lacks. Hell, even Hellraiser follows through on its themes. So all the other films that we mentioned follow through on the themes. So it's, it's just so... The more that Lauren points out, I'm getting sitting here going, all this cool stuff that I like about it is like this really happy accident. Mm. That's weird to me. 
there is one thing about it that worked really well for me, which surprised me, because it normally doesn't when this happens, and that is the sense of futility that comes when the Lewis and Clark blows up at the end. Mm. Because the the bulk of the second act of this film is them trying to fix the ship. Yeah. And they succeed. They fix it and they're going home and then it all blows up. Now normally that complete draining away of any sense of hope makes me totally disconnect mm-hmm. and go uh, okay, why were you bothering with all of that then? But for some reason it really worked for me this time. I'm going to save my deconstruction of Weir for Sunshine because Sunshine has its own character analogous to Weir named Pinbacker who in the face of the enormity and Lovecraftian horror of a science-based phenomena that he reacts to religiously, and he thus becomes the biggest threat to a crew desperate to stay alive. Because Sunshine is like a really, really wonderful, excellent version of this film. And there's going to be a few people out there going, oh, no, Sunshine? Seriously? I fought for Event Horizon. And that is absolutely fine. But when we do our Sunshine show, we are going to be doing a lot of deconstruction and philosophy and, and, and discussing what's going on there. That will be coming next year. There is an abundance of very intentional thematic material to pick apart in that one. Well, not to be on that show, but I will say I think I do need to rewatch Sunshine now, having rewatched Event Horizon. I need to rewatch that now just to see the two in balance. Yes. So it's excellent. I think I decided today that Sunshine may well be my favourite sci-fi ever. And that's saying a lot. Mm. Uh, oh. So yeah, folks, if you uh, uh, if you found yourself going pish posh when I said Sunshine <laughs> was that good, uh, you might want to rewatch it again in preparation because uh, when we lean into it, we're going deep, deep into the center of the sun. And also, folks, if you can get hold of it, rewatch Solaris. And if you've not seen it, the the 2002 um, Soderbergh version, it is a drama version of this. And again. You know, deeply philosophical, and uh, it's haunting, and it has a real weight to it. Uh, which uh, this, I mean, this ultimately, it's a haunted house ghost train ride, and it, it actually is perfectly serviceable if you don't want much more than what it's what it's offering you. There, there was one bit which they cut out in the end of Event Horizon, which I kind of wish they'd left in. But even if they had. It wouldn't really achieve much, and it was after the blood pours out of the uh, um, the, the living quarters, and um, poor uh, Stark goes, you know, crashing down the uh, uh, ladder shaft, and then runs away with Cooper. Weir crawls down the ladder, uh, you know, head downwards like a spider. And uh, he's already the weird beast, as they uh, the makeup artist called him. He's already got, got the things carved into him. Now, I would posit, by the way, that because he's got eyes now, that's not even weird. That's not his physical form. That's the fragment of weird that the ship has taken. It's made f- solid and flesh enough to be able to uh, fight with Miller, but that's not actually the version of weird that ripped his own eyes out after the final uh, uh, hallucination drove him fully insane. And, and I do got like Sam. And got sucked into space. He's gone. I do like the conflict that Sam Neill uh, brings to the character. The, the point when he finds Peters and goes, oh, Peters, oh no. It feels like 
rather than going, ah, Peter's splendid, and just making him this, like, oh, well, you're just an evil shitbag, that there is actually maybe a decent man deep inside Weir who's been struggling with all of this shit and is about to be completely overturned with grief and and, uh, madness. So that version of Weir's dead. So this weir beast comes down the ladder, and it's it's all soaked in blood. And it's a it's a sort of a, a, a chamber that that has just like poured blood out of it. And now this naked, twisted creature is coming out, going ha ha. The ship has given birth to a creature, mm. to weir, to a version of weir that it has sunk its. Uh, psychosis it is now Weir is now the voice of the ship he is the embodiment of this thing's evil the ship self-actualizes by giving birth to itself it's pretty heavy-handed symbolism but it's something but when Paul Anderson was talking about the scene that they had to cut it was like no it's such a shame because it was a really great bit in The Exorcist (laughs) you know when Reagan does her Mm, crab walk that's all it was to him it was just Weir doing a weird little crab walk he didn't get what had just occurred in his film. Yeah, that really hammered home for me. This is just as as shallow as as, uh, as it needs to be because there's and it actually it makes it so much less scary when you realise that the people putting it together were just like, oh hey ho, this is fun. <laughs> okay, so Lauren, you mentioned before crazy fan theories. Well, yeah. So I'm, I'm on a subreddit that's like r slash fan theories. I don't even know why to this point, but Event Horizon comes up on it a lot. And as I was going through them, because I know I'm, I mentioned it to you that there's like a cute fan theory I actually really like with Event Horizon, but all of them, every single one of them, is trying to connect it to another franchise. And I was thinking earlier i feel like that's because it is so hollow Mm. that they're trying to add something more to it and because it is so full of references there are so many things that you can pin it to and fans love world building so they'll do it themselves if you leave them to it Mm. yeah exactly um so i mean uh, all the ones you would expect and maybe some that you wouldn't so there's like a whole theory about how it's connected to doom which oh that's the portal to hell thing isn't it Basically, yeah, they're like, oh, it, this is the teleportation technology that the UAC would eventually use on Mars. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Why not? I mean, Fill your boots. I mean whatever. <laughs> there, there's a really bad one for the Chronicles of Riddick, which is like, Ooh. yeah, probably not. Um, of course, there's oh, several. To get to for... the Underverse? Was that what the, uh, the Necromongers were doing? Yeah, yeah, I think that's what it, that, that's what they're getting at here. They is took saying, going to hell really quite well. They came back as boring fuckers, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was that bad. Pinhead looked and went, "Get out!" I was going to say they went to the Cenobites and went, "Well, we're not keen on the whole S and M thing, but can we have the cults?" Yeah, what we brought so, back we're... was bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> well, someone's got to do it, Alex. <laughs> the true, the true hell. <laughs> Uh, there, there's one that's pointing out the the uh, similarities between this movie and Dead Space because yeah. it's like, did Dr. William Weir get the idea for the gravity drive from a thing like the marker and, that's and things like that? That's a post hoc ergo uh, in reverse. I, I think it's that Dead Space was very inspired by this. I, I, yes, I agree. Uh, there's a, there's a pretty long one for uh, Hellraiser, but again, like they literally designed the portal device 
out of the box from Hellraiser. So like, and yes. Even Hellraiser went to space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it went to space. So really, this is Hellraiser X. Yeah. So like, okay, okay. There's a really, really long one that I found that is a, a like a unification of most of those previous ones, saying that this film is evidence that Doom, Hellraiser, Chronicles of Riddick, and one other one I'm going to talk about in a minute is all from the same like like franchise universe kind of thing. And, did, and it is. Did it, that it kid is, on that hospital show dream it as well? I mean, probably. It's. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Like, it's very strange. But the one that I, I actually... Thanos turned up at the end to collect an infinity gem. <laughs> <laughs> the Hellstone? Yeah. But the one fan theory, like, story that I actually really like is that this film is a historical document of sorts. Galaxy Quest yeah, style. Historical documents. But it's for Warhammer 40k. Uh, because... Uh, no, that no, no, I can no. see. It's, it's actually crazy. So in Warhammer 40K, there's a story about how they found faster than light travel, how the humans did. And it was because they had an old prototype ship that crossed over from our dimension into another one that they called the Immaterium. And it is a dimension of pure madness and chaos and psychic entities that are colloquially called demons. Ships that go there that are not appropriately shielded come back possessed by the psychic beings and their crew ravaged slash mutated into things that look a whole lot like what Ware looks like at the end with the, the scarification and such. Pause. Yes. When was that fiction written? Oh, now that's a really good question. Warhammer 40k came out in the late 80s, I think. Okay. Here's my question. Did Philip Eisner copy them, or did they copy Philip Eisner? Because one was copying the other. That's a, that's the way... That's a Xerox. Oh, yeah. I'm saying Eisner copied uh, Warhammer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's oh. got form for copying everyone else. Well, and, he's written three films, so yeah. Okay. And the Imperium of Man actually designs all of their ships to look like giant flying cathedrals, so... Hence why it's, um... Oh, was it Gothic Marder? Space Fleet Gothic Armada, or what? I can't remember what they uh, call it now. Uh, Battle Fleet Gothic. That's it. Yeah. 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 They are so, literally flying cathedrals. Yeah, exactly. But so I like I like that read in a in a way just because like every part of it fits in a really specific way. But you're right, Alex. They probably just took the imagery and script elements from the 40K stories, from yeah. the fluff that was, I mean, uh, Warhammer 40K originally came out in 1987. So. Um, Philip Eisner also wrote the screenplay for The Mutant Chronicles, which was released in 2009 and stars Thomas Jane hey, and John Malkovich. The film tells the tale of 28th century soldiers battling so-called necromutants. <laughs> so Chaos. that supports the uh, Chronicles of Riddick theory. The necromongers, but they're mutant necromongers. Do you know what? I, for oh. my, for my... Do you know what? All of this is fucking boring. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I don't mean to like bring the show down, but all of this like journeying to a black hole to fight mutants and like the horrors and the Lovecrafty and the, it's so tedious to me because there's no heart in it. I I don't care. Yeah, 
that's the, that's the long and the short of it. You need heart to care to care about something. You need small characters um, with small concerns. I did actually write down in my notes when they were talking about uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. Is relativity in this case getting so far away from everyone you care about that you just don't give a shit anymore? Relativity in this case is disappearing <laughs> up the black hole that is your own ass. <laughs> well, see, that's the real problem with this film because much like the event horizon, the heart of it is just a black hole. Mm. <laughs> there you go. It sucks everything down. The next question was going to be, do the performances elevate the material? And I actually think that while you do, you're correct in saying that, there, that the heart of this is a black hole, there's one or two moments, one or two performances, which make me feel like there were human beings present within the film we watched. And Miller himself, like I said, um, take, it will take on the chin being sent to hell for either an eternity or just a very painful day getting buggered with a fish fork to protect his crew. The fact that he's able to square away the, the man he had to leave behind, Corrick, uh, and consider that I, I'm getting a second chance to save Justin here and to, to, to save Stark and, and Cooper as well and, and to, to leave them with some form of future, I will take this punishment it's a little thing, but it's a thing. And, and, and he has a lot of dignity throughout. Mm. And I'd like to think as well that that character building, whether most of it came from Fishburne or not, I don't know. But the in the original draft of the script, it's Cooper who saves Justin. Right, yeah. It's only in this in the final version that it's Miller. And it's really important to Miller's character yeah. that it be him. Again, like Anderson was like, and actually, it, like he said, and actually, it does work in a kind of uh, he's been given a second chance. Like he'd almost not thought of that before, so it's fine. We can all facepalm together, but uh, there See, is a. This is why I don't listen to directors' commentaries <laughs> that much anymore. It's, it's going to the puppet show and seeing all the strings. Um, it's it's going to the puppet show and seeing the strings in a little heap on the floor while the puppet master stares blankly at them, going, "What was I doing again?" It's going to the puppet <laughs> show and seeing Sooty smoking a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I definitely agree, though, Alex, but I think it's because the director, not knowing what the hell was going on, basically, is just like allowed so much space for the actors because I think most of their performances are really good. They're pretty solid, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, not just like the two leads. Like, I think everybody really holds their weight and adds something to their role. And I, I think that that can also be said for the cinematography. Like, the the director being so clueless allowed space for everybody else to just do their work. And they brought an A-game to this wow. when, like, he didn't. That's damning of Paul W.S. Anderson, but see, watching what he did with the Resident Evil films, I can't argue that he's a fantastic director. And it, it may be that uh, the, the best elements of the films that I, of his that I've enjoyed have been a happy accident or other people working under him that have been uh, excelled while he was uh, asleep at the wheel. Um, but maybe we're not giving him enough credit, and while he does come off as boneheaded in his, uh, um, sometimes in his uh, commentaries, you know, he's... he's got it together enough to be able to direct the film the the problem was what he gave in the end was rejected by almost everyone like the studio wanted it cut 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 and it still made audiences sick the the scene with um peter's uh finding her son with his uh, rotting legs originally they were going to cut back to the legs and they were going to be full of maggots 
Mike stared in disbelief as his hands fell off. From them rose millions of tiny maggots. Maggots? Maggots. 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 All over the floor of the post office in Leytonstone. But the test audiences were revulsed by this. They actually went from being tense to being angry. And you can't come back from, uh, from that. So getting it tested along the way certainly gave them a feel for that. And the, um, what was the other bit that they, the uh, t- test audiences went, yeah, nope. Um, I think it was that they, they put too much in the blood orgy scene. Uh, also, when Peters falls, uh, her legs were originally supposed to be like jut, like the bones were Ooh. jutting out of the legs, and they like stayed on it for a little bit. Yeah, true that. Yeah, and uh, the it, 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 he he got that it made it to. Oh, that was the other bit. Um, when DJ gets uh, cut open by uh, Weir uh, surgically, uh, originally when uh, Miller finds him, he's supposed to be still alive, and he sort of puts up his head, and Miller has to then shoot him, which is very. Aliens kill me. It's n- worth noting, by the way, as grisly and grim though this is, as though it made test audiences sick, worse things have happened in Game of Thrones. Mm. Like, there are things in Game of Thrones with sustained sadism, especially on characters we really have grown to care about, which are far worse than things that happen in this, you know, sickening uh, movie about Lovecraftian uh, confrontations with hell itself. Uh, so again, I, I think that the modern audiences that have to, to go worse than Game of Thrones to really get an, a reaction out of them, which again, as you say, uh, with not enough time to really build upon it, is almost certainly likely to get people to go, ah, this is silly. I so now want the end of Game of Thrones to be that they're all dead and they're all in hell and they've just been <laughs> living yeah. through this horrendous fantasy. Frankly, if Westeros is my version of hell where everyone's a piece of shit, I don't want to be there. If I, was, if I woke up and I was in the fantasy world of Westeros, I'd go, fucking kill me now. Seriously. What is dead cannot die. Yeah, 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 yeah. Boom. <laughs> Literally, I am so, so glad I have never watched a single minute of that show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but there's one scene where uh, uh, Miller is talking with uh, um, DJ. So that's uh, Fishburne and uh, Jason Isaacs. And it goes from Fishburne's uh, very somber recount of what happened with the man he couldn't save to Isaacs legitimizing the uh, otherworldly horror of what's going on here with his uh, Liberate Tutte May Ex and Ferris and I'm telling you it was his voice I heard he was calling to me a young bosun named Eddie Cork we served on the Goliath together when the O2 tanks ruptured Four of us made it to the lifeboat, but Cork was still on board the Goliath when the fire broke out. You ever seen fire in zero gravity? It's beautiful. It's like liquid. It slides all over everything. Comes up in waves. And they just kept hitting him. Wave after wave. He was screaming for me to save him. What did you do? I did the only thing I could. I closed the lifeboat hatch and I left him behind. I 
swore I'd never lose another man. I've known you a long time. You never told me that. That's just it, DJ. I, I never told anybody. But this ship knew about it. It knows my fears. It knows my secrets. Gets inside your head and it shows you. I wasn't going to tell you this. I've been listening to the distress signal. And I am... Um, I think I made a mistake in the translation. Go on. What are you hacking off? Is it my torso? I thought it said liberate me. Save me. But it's not me. It's liberate tutte me. Save yourself. And it gets worse. There. I think that says X in fairies. Save yourself from hell. Look, if what Dr. Weir tells us is true, this ship has been beyond the boundaries of our universe, of known scientific reality. Who knows where it's been? What it's seen? And what it's brought back with it? From hell. You don't believe in that kind of stuff, do you? Whoever sent that message, he sure believes in hell. This whole scene, the conviction that these two immensely talented actors bring to these performances and to these lines of the script it, it feels like it's worth more than the film itself that what they're what they're laying down here and, and again you know this is a praise be to uh, everyone involved with this for making it better than the the uh, disposable toss it could have been still not enough to save it at the box office but it's enough to that's what's made it a cult classic i think well uh, so that scene in particular actually makes me walk back a little bit on my previous rather damning statements of the director because originally there was supposed to be a flashback to that moment with Mm. Fishburne's like with the dialogue over top of it but he saw that the performance was so strong that he decided to to get rid of the the flashback entirely and just let it be the scene that we saw Mm. which I think is a really good idea so I think it's not necessarily that the director stepped back and let everybody else do it I think he recognized that what everybody else was doing was better than what he could tell them to do so he just Mm. kind of like allowed that to happen and recognized that it was the way to go translated as he had enough sense to shut up yeah same as when he worked out that Shang Tsung needs as much screen time as possible. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> um, and to end on a high note, what are your favourite little details that we haven't mentioned yet? Because we you know, want to say some nice things about this... Um, uh, mixed bag before we leave. We've already mentioned it, but I love the set design. I'm going to say again, the set design and what work is 
really fantastic in this and even if the engine room is <clears throat> a round version of the lamentation configuration just because i can show up and say it um i do i do like i like a lot of the visual look that they went for like the extra long corridor or the corridor with the teeth because every door should have teeth apparently <laughs> <laughs> lauren has a house full of doors with teeth Oh, don't look now that I've mentioned several times already is uh, any of the scenes with Peters and her child, specifically where she's chasing after the child. This film references to the point of copy and pasting grief over the grisly fate of a child, that grief manifesting as a spectral hooded runaway version of that child. And then when they finally catch this apparition, both Peters and Donald Sutherland in Don't Look Now, well, to put it lightly, regret that they chased them that far. Uh, it is a superior film to this. It has a fantastic relationship between Julie Christie and uh, Donald Sutherland. And as we said, this turned up in the It movie as well. And to a degree, the book and the uh, TV miniseries too. That's Only it's a fantastic. yellow rain slicker in this rather than a red one in uh, uh, Don't Know Now and a uh, grey one in Event Horizon. But no one else is allowed to do this imagery. <laughs> Although they did it in Casino Royale with Vesper. And there's a certain classiness lent to it by uh, staying with Venice. For the setting. It's ancient and beautifully constructed and labyrinthine and doomed. Venice is sinking. That's why it's so romantic. Another thing I really like is that it's a haunted house uh, movie, but it has literally no escape to it. You know, in, in haunted house movies, we're like, I'm just get, I'm getting out of here right now. When they get there, they can't leave. They're trying to get out of there as soon as possible but their ship is already damaged. So it, there isn't that kind of... You could just leave the house at any point uh, sensibility going there. They've, they've made the whole thing very claustrophobic because everything outside is incredibly hostile. It would be technically worse for them to step outside. As Justin well, finds out. Yeah. And when they do leave, they literally take a part of the ship with them. Yeah. Like, they have to leave on the ship, which is kind of a nice... Uh, theming uh, in a way that that at least sort of paid off in the end. Whenever Park, what's her name, Parker, has the sudden like Stark, Stark, sorry, uh, Park, yeah, where Stark has the sudden uh, like hallucination that wears there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I I personally I I still love a lot of the cinematography. Like a lot of the shots are incredibly beautiful in like really baroque ways if you will the uh the ship design i i love the event horizon like just overall design is just really cool like really evocative and the fact that it's just like it's like too big to believe that it's a real that that it could be a real thing in a way like it's uncanny and just strange um and i love Sam Neill's performance. I mean, I, I love Fishburne's performance. I like everybody's performance, but there's something about Sam Neill, and it's a it's a weird thing where like I'm like, you know, you had kind of the same role in Mouth of Madness, and I'm I'm a little afraid to admit it, but I feel like under these kinds of circumstances, that would be me. It would just be like, oh, oh, otherworldly entity that wants to give me crazy hell powers. <laughs> I mean, sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to move away from Lauren now. Yeah, <laughs> Lauren would see, embrace the hell straight away. I, right? I join the winning team. I don't see a problem <laughs> with that. And this is why I'm over in America and you three are in the, the, the UK, I guess. But, you know, offer me the dark pact. Where do I sign? I, I just... That's that's one of the weird elements of this movie and In the Mouth of Madness and some other films I can think of where I I like weirdly 
feel for and associate with the antagonist? Like, Lauren, I, I have a box here that you might like. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Such wonderful oh. sites to show you. <laughs> I'm really bad at Rubik's Cubes, though. I might need to look up how to do this online. Oh, the, the gouged out <laughs> eyes effects, you know, where they, they throw uh, some CGI pits into the backs of their heads. They they never look right. The light never falls into them. It never looks solid. Uh, there's there's no way to really do that and actually have the it not look. It either looks like if it's a practical effect, a fake head, or it looks like crappy CG. Uh, but under those circumstances, don't do it. Mm. So I suppose they kind of they, they had to do it. And obviously the whole eye thing, even down to the eye gouging, they. Uh, only way I can think of that you can do that and have it look even close to being right would be a clay head mm. and and the eyes actually missing and composite that onto the person. It would be tough. You could possibly do that. Um, but there'd still be that slight disconnect between the eyes chroma keyed onto the yeah, face, absolutely. which would have to remain absolutely rigid. Otherwise, the eyes would be wobbling around. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it, it's just easier to, to do it to with the CG eye. <laughs> this is why Thor didn't bother doing it. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a similar moment in a film called Centurion where a picked uh, tracker named Itain, who's had her tongue cut out uh, a long time beforehand looks up into the sky and howls like a wolf just re- just full of rage and anguish and it's a really fantastic shot if you do that from the side neil marshall but neil marshall I was went, say that's neil marshall yeah <laughs> neil marshall went up above and shot her from above so that you could see that she had no tongue and it's a cgi mouth stuck in the middle of a real Ooh. face and whenever that's done it doesn't look right even the russo brothers couldn't get it right so don't do that. <laughs> I think the two things for me that work best are the isolation of space and how that brings forward any grief, shame, guilt, other negative emotions that you might be carrying with you and otherwise trying to smother. Mm. I am always very heavily invested in any film that explores that even lightly. And it does really make me think that these people that they're interviewing at the moment as to whether they want to go and be colonists on Mars, you really want people who've got experience of dealing with depression, anxiety, etc. Because don't send anyone who's never had to face any of that because they will take it with them, it will come out once they're there and it will go horribly wrong. As soon as they step into the interview. They'll they'll open a portal to hell, they'll become a demon monster and then we've got... Don't send Lauren. (laughs) Don't send Lauren, Evan. We'll have to send the Rock. No, no, the Rock was the bad guy. Now we have to send Carl Urban. Just don't send uh, Sam Neill either. And the other thing is Lawrence Fishburne. I think Lawrence Fishburne is amazing in this. He sells every questionable bit of it thoroughly with dignity and his character they're they are all really good i like the cast i think they all do a great job with what they're given some of them do a fantastic job with a a very small amount that they've been given and that's something that has obviously been borrowed heavily from aliens uh, sorry from Alien. alien that you have this crew who are thinly characterised on the page but then the actors get to bring in their own elements that make them more three-dimensional but I think Fishburne Fishburne does the best job Hmm. it's a great reminder of 
that man can work with so little and give you so much. Mm. It's like, I, how could anyone argue with this casting as Perry White? And then we saw it. It's like, uh, you're wasting Lawrence Fishburne. This is wrong. Mm. Also, side note, uh, he uh, mentioned uh, a few years later to uh, Anderson uh, that had he not done all the wire work for the anti-gravity uh, uh, moments in um, this, where they, they suspended them in a giant pipe, like 40 feet above the ground in this just just hanging on wires and it's like you could just plummet to your death here there's they really have to trust that these guys know what they're doing uh but had he not done that first he says the wire work for the matrix which fo- followed two years later would have killed him the t-shirts that the uh, crew of the lois and clark wear lois and clark lewis and clark <laughs> Side note, by the way, the Lewis and Clark is a really silly name for this ship. They are effectively the uh, interplanetary Coast Guard. Well, Lewis and Clark were explorers. They were uh, charting, uh, ostensibly at the time, uncharted territory. Apparently they uh, they had a map uh, and had it all mapped out for them by uh, some uh, friendly Native Americans. But um, So really their ship should be called the Hasselhoff? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it would be named thus by Star-Lord. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no, it, it shouldn't be called the Lewis and Clark. It's not an explorer. The event horizon should have been called the Lewis and Clark. Uh, but uh, there's pictures stuck all over the walls. Everyone like stuck their own little sort of uh, um, yeah, photographs there to just to give it a sort of a personal touch. Uh, Jolie Richardson has pieces of fine classical art on her postcards. Beautifully painted ladies. This reminds me how James Cameron asked the uh, Colonial Marines to personalise their armour. And they all got to do that apart from Michael Bean, who inherited James Remar's armour after he left the set, because he was the original Hicks. But the t-shirts they're wearing have their blood group on them, and, and various medical details, so that if they get into trouble in space, uh, whoever's serving uh, them uh, medically, like DJ, would have all that information right there. Uh, which is a nice little touch and, and interestingly kind of comes back around in uh, Mad Max Fury Road where he has that T-shirt printed on his back as a universal blood donor. It's a nice uh, uh, touch. Also, it only takes 56 days to travel to Neptune. So when Smitty starts going, oh, why the fuck are we here? Uh, and they start grumbling, that makes sense for them to do that because, you know, you're out for two months you're back in two months. So you're away for four months on, on this res- important rescue mission to fix what was considered one of the greatest space disasters in history. Prometheus, do you remember that film? They're traveling seven years to get to that, that planetoid. And when they get there, they start grumbling, why the fuck are we here? At the very least, they're going to be seven years getting back. Would you give up 14 years of your life for something you don't know what it's for. And we did a show on Prometheus a few years ago that you can hear more rantings on, and I've now added to it my hour-long Alien Covenant review that a lot of you won't have heard. That's now on the regular School of Movies podcast feed, and if you like listening to that, you may well be missing out on dozens of quick review shows that are available on our weekly updated Patreon bonus feed for those at the $5 tier and up. And as always, our $15 tier gets sponsorship credit every episode, so a major eyeless thank you to 
Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. But of course, thank you to all of our patrons. Without you, this show would literally cease to exist. Next week, the dystopian sci-fi known as The Warriors. Can you dig it? <laughs> Anderson uh, uh, was annoyed at the analogy of uh, uh, films to uh, it's a roller coaster. He uh, he said he's heard films called that, uh, and the uh, person has also said it's just action from the word go and it's relentless. Anderson took exception to that and said, "No, the the best roller coasters you spend nearly half the ride just ramping up the tension, and that's what he intended Event Horizon to be." To that end. The actual ramp up is probably the best part of, of, of this film for me, as in like the, the, the serious beginning. It's once it starts going a bit crazy nearer the end, the actual, the, the meat of the ride when it's like, you know, spiraling around the place, that it actually has a bit less dignity and a bit less nous to it, if that makes sense. So yeah. technically he succeeded, although maybe not the way he thought he wanted. He gets the theory, not the execution. Yeah, maybe that. <laughs> I think it's kind of notable how many other films we ended up talking about throughout the course of this. That seems vaguely appropriate considering where we landed. So then, we will see you next week. Thank you very, very much to our guests, Neil Taylor, The Kid Dog, and Lauren Grieve. And we're going to leave you on Funky Shit by The Prodigy from their album, The Fat of the Land, which came out just before this film did, and which is the end credits. That's one of the greatest dance albums ever made, and you've heard a whole bunch of it already on this show. Go out and get it. From a Virgin Megastore or Suncoast CD shop near you. James Enright, who commissioned this episode, we hope you enjoyed it. So, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
to see. Oh, but you, you will need ears to hear us, so don't cut those off. Lauren. <laughs> hey! Hey! I'm not, I'm not very scared of Lauren. Yeah, me too. Well, since you just mentioned Resident Evil, I actually have kind of an amusing anecdote about the first Resident Evil. Okay. It's about the editing for it specifically, because okay. I... Before the first Resident Evil came out, it was kind of like, oh, wow, they're making a movie out of this video game series I really like. So I was at a convention, and I bought a bootleg VHS of it, and I watched it. I'm like, wow, this is, like, really moody because it was really dark, and the entire film was in white, black, and red. And I was like, wow, what, like, a weird, artsy way to do this. And then I saw it many years later. It was like, oh, that was just the crappy, like, VHS copy. Oh, this looks terrible. It was, it was really funny. I know. <laughs> so when something that goes wrong in the copying process makes a better film than you started with. Yeah, yeah. If, if the film is deteriorated by your medium and is better for it, you might have a problem. Was that cohesive? Did that scan? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. So. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you have a very good point about they didn't really know how to do series properly. And it's one of the reasons why it bugs me when people refer to um, Harry Potter as a franchise. I mean, you could argue, I suppose, that it is now, sort of. But it the original Harry Potters are a series. They're not a franchise, which yeah. is one person makes one movie and then somebody else buys the idea and makes their own. Mm. The point about, like, family-friendly... TV versions of a lot of these is like like real on point for what like what we're transitioning into at this point in history. I mean, I remember as a kid watching the Beetlejuice cartoon, and that's, I mean, that film really isn't that much for children. It's a film about a sick pervert. Yes, Beetlejuice, RoboCop, Conan, yeah. Rambo. Rambo, Aliens. It Almost was meant to get one. But well, yeah, we didn't. They actually made the. You can actually see the the episodes that they did make somewhere. I remember watching one of them and was like, "Wow, this is trash." Operation Aliens. 
there there's there is definitely an aliens cartoon out there that i've seen that's supposed to be like a family friendly version of it i it might have just been the pilot but it's real bad i never saw the pilot i saw like little shreds of it i'm gonna need to look for that if you ever find a link to operation aliens please show me because i would love to have seen that um uh, did you guys remember the friday the 13th um saturday morning kids show no what oh jason is that it was whenever oh, right. um, the kids in Crystal Lake uh, came up against, like, um, people who were, like, trying to poach or, uh, like, people who were setting fires in the forest. They'd call Jason with a little, like, widget box. He'd come out of the water in Crystal Lake and he'd, like, throw the people who were setting forest fires around. What? Please tell me you're making that up. I am making that Please. up, but it did sound plausible, okay. didn't it? It, <laughs> it did. did for a second. No, because I know there is a Friday the 13th series. It has nothing to do with Jason. Right. It's more about this family go around retrieving cursed objects, so it's more like Warehouse 13. Oh, oh wow. Like, who would be Jason's Godzuki? <laughs> <laughs> it would just be Chucky. Oh, I forgot about that. Version of yes. Chucky. Oh, oh, no. And Chucky. <laughs> okay. Oh. Oh, the theme He's song would be so good. Signs all the contracts. Oh, I'm going to be sick. Right, okay.